Section 5 of Lives of Girls Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sherry Gardner. Lives of Girls Who Became Famous by Sarah K. Bolton. Section 5. Margaret Fuller Osley. Margaret Fuller, in some respects the most remarkable of American women, lived a pathetic life and died a tragic death. Without money and without beauty, she became the idol of an immense circle of friends. Men and women were alike her devotees. It is the old story that the woman of brain makes lasting conquests of hearts, while the pretty face holds its sway only for a month or a year. Margaret, born in Cambridgeport, Massachusetts, May 23, 1810, was the oldest child of a scholarly lawyer, Mr. Timothy Fuller, and of a sweet-tempered, devoted mother. The father, with small means, had one absorbing purpose in life, to see that each of his children was finely educated. To do this, and make ends meet, was a struggle. His daughter said years after in writing of him, His love for my mother was the green spot on which he stood apart from the commonplaces of a mere breadwinning existence. She was one of those fair and flower-like natures, which sometimes spring up even beside the most dusty highways of life. Of all persons whom I have known, she had in her most of the angelic, of that spontaneous love for every living thing, for man and beast and tree which restores the golden age. Very fond of his oldest child, Margaret, the father determined that she should be as well educated as his boys. In those days there were no colleges for girls, and none where they might enter with their brothers so that Mr. Fuller was obliged to teach his daughter after the wearing work of the day. The bright child began to read Latin at six, but was necessarily kept up late for the recitation. When a little later she was walking in her sleep and dreaming strange dreams, he did not see that he was overtaxing both her body and brain. When the lessons had been learned, she would go into the library and read eagerly. One Sunday afternoon, when she was eight years old, she took down Shakespeare from the shelves, opened at Romeo and Juliet, and soon became fascinated with the story. "'What are you reading?' asked her father. Shakespeare was the answer, not lifting her eyes from the page. "'That won't do. That's no book for Sunday. Go put it away and take another.' Margaret did as she was bidden, but the temptation was too strong, and the book was soon in her hands again. "'What is that child about, that she don't hear a word we say?' said an aunt. Seeing what she was reading, the father said angrily, "'Give me the book, and go directly to bed.' There could have been a wiser and gentler way of control, but he had not learned that it is better to lead children than to drive them. When not reading, Margaret enjoyed her mother's little garden of flowers. I loved, she says, to gaze on the roses, the violets, the lilies, the pinks. My mother's hand had planted them, and they bloomed for me. I kissed them and pressed them to my bosom with passionate emotions. An ambition swelled my heart to be as beautiful, as perfect as they. Margaret grew to fifteen with an exuberance of life and affection, which the chilling atmosphere of that New England home somewhat suppressed, 
and with an increasing love for books and cultured people. I rise a little before five, she writes, walk an hour, and then practice on the piano till seven when we breakfast. Next, I read French, Sismondi's Literature of the South of Europe, till eight, then two or three lectures in Brown's Philosophy. About half-past nine, I go to Mr. Perkinson's school and study Greek till twelve, when, the school being dismissed, I recite, go home, and practice again till dinner at two. Then, when I can, I read two hours in Italian. And why all this hard work for a girl of fifteen? The all-powerful motive of ambition, she says. I am determined on distinction, which formerly I thought to win at an easy rate, but now I see that long years of labor must be given. She had learned the secret of most prominent lives. The majority in this world will always be mediocre, because they lack high-minded ambition and the willingness to work. Two years after, at seventeen, she writes, I am studying Madame de Stahl, Epictetus, Milton, Racine, and the Castilian ballads with great delight. I am engrossed in reading the elder Italian poets, beginning with Berni, from whom I shall proceed to Pulci and Politian. How almost infinitely above bows and dresses was such intellectual work as this! It was impossible for such a girl not to influence the mind of every person she met. At nineteen, she became the warm friend of Reverend James Freeman Clark, whose friendship, he says, was to me a gift of the gods. With what eagerness did she seek for knowledge, what fire, what exuberance, what reach, grasp, overflow of thought shone in her conversation, and what she thus was to me, she was to many others, inexhaustible in power of insight, and with a good will broad as ether, she could enter into the needs and sympathize with the various excellences of the greatest variety of characters. One thing only she demanded of all her friends, that they should not be satisfied with the common routine of life, that they should aspire to something higher, better, holier than had now attained. Witty, learned, imaginative, she was conceded to be the best conversationist in any circle. She possessed the charm that every woman may possess, appreciation of others and interest in their welfare. This sympathy unlocked every heart to her. She was made the confidant of thousands. All classes loved her. Now it was a serving girl who told Margaret her troubles and her cares. Now it was a distinguished man of letters. She was always an inspiration. Men never talked idle, commonplace talk with her. She could appreciate the best of their minds and hearts, and they gave it. She was fond of social life, and no party seemed complete without her. At twenty-two she began to study German, and in three months was reading with ease Goethe's Faust, Tasso, and Iphigenia, Kerner, Richter, and Schiller. She greatly admired Goethe, desiring, like him, always to have some engrossing object of pursuit. Besides all this study, she was teaching six little children to help bear the expenses of the household. The family at this time moved to Groton, a great privation for Margaret, who enjoyed and needed the culture of Boston society. But she says, As sad or merry, I must always be learning. 
I laid down a course of study at the beginning of the winter. This consisted of the history and geography of modern Europe and of America, architecture, and the works of Alfieri, Goethe, and Schiller. The teaching was continued because her brothers must be sent to Harvard College, and this required money, not the first nor the last time that sisters have worked to give brothers an education superior to their own. At last the Constitution, never robust, broke down, and for nine days Margaret lay hovering between this world and the next. The tender mother called her Dear Lamb, and watched her constantly, while the stern father, who never praised his children lest it might harm them, said, My dear, I have been thinking of you in the night, and I cannot remember that you have any faults. You have defects, of course, as all mortals have, but I do not know that you have a single fault. While Margaret recovered, the father was taken suddenly with cholera, and died after a two days illness. He was sadly missed, for at heart he was devoted to his family. When the estate was settled, there was little left for each, so for Margaret life would be more laborious than ever. She had expected to visit Europe with Harriet Martineau, who was just returning home from a visit to this country, but the father's death crushed this long-cherished and ardently prayed-for journey. She must stay at home and work for others. Books were read now more eagerly than ever. Sartor Resartus, Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Heine, but money must be earned. Ah, if genius could only develop in ease and prosperity, it rarely has the chance. The tree grows best when the dirt is oftenest stirred about the roots. Perhaps the best in us comes only from such stirring. Margaret now obtained a situation as teacher of French and Latin in Bronson Alcott School, here she was appreciated by both master and pupils. Mr. Alcott said, I think her the most brilliant talker of the day. She has a quick and comprehensive wit, a firm command of her thoughts, and a speech to win the ear of the most cultivated. She taught advanced classes in German and Italian, besides having several private pupils. Before this time, she had become a valued friend of the Emerson family. Mr. Emerson says, Sometimes she stayed a few days, often a week, more seldom a month, and all tasks that could be suspended were put aside to catch the favorable hour in walking, riding, or boating, to talk with this joyful guest who brought wit, anecdotes, love stories, tragedies, oracles with her. The day was never long enough to exhaust her opulent memory, and I, who knew her intimately for ten years, never saw her without surprise at her new powers. She was passionately fond of music and of art, saying, I have been very happy with 470 designs of Raphael in my possession for a week. She loved nature like a friend, paying homage to rocks and woods and flowers. She said, I hate not to be beautiful when all around is so. After teaching with Mr. Alcott, she became the principal teacher in a school at Providence, Rhode Island. Here, as ever, she showed great wisdom both with children and adults. The little folks in the house were allowed to look at the gifts of many friends in her room, on condition that they would not touch them. One day a young visitor came and insisted on taking down a microscope and broke it. 
The child who belonged in the house was well-nigh heartbroken over the affair, and though protesting her innocence, was suspected both of the deed and of falsehood. Miss Fuller took the weeping child upon her knee, saying, Now, my dear little girl, tell me all about it. Only remember that you must be careful, for I shall believe every word you say. Investigation showed that the child thus confided in told the whole truth. After two years in Providence, she returned to Boston, and in 1839 began a series of parlor lectures, or conversations, as they were called. This seemed a strange thing for a woman when public speaking by her sex was almost unknown. These talks were given weekly, from eleven o'clock till one, to twenty-five or thirty of the most cultivated women of the city. Now the subject of discussion was Grecian mythology. Now it was fine arts, education, or the relations of woman to the family, the church, society, and literature. These meetings were continued through five winters, supplemented by evening conversations, attended by both men and women. In these gatherings, Margaret was at her best, brilliant, eloquent, charming. During this time, a few gifted men, Emerson, Channing, and others, decided to start a literary and philosophical magazine called the Dial. Probably no woman in the country would have been chosen as the editor save Margaret Fuller. She accepted the position, and for four years managed the journal ably, writing for it some valuable essays. Some of these were published later in her book on Literature and Art. Her Woman in the Nineteenth Century, a learned and vigorous essay on woman's place in the world, first appeared in part in the dial. Of this work, she said, in closing it, After taking a long walk early one most exhilarating morning, I sat down to work and did not give it the last stroke till near nine in the evening. Then I felt a delightful glow, as if I had put a good deal of my true life in it, and as if, should I go away now, the measure of my footprint would be left on the earth. Miss Fuller had published, besides these works, two books of translations from the German, and a sketch of travel called Summer on the Lakes. Her experience was like that of most authors who are beginning. Some fame, but no money realized. All this time she was frail in health, overworked, struggling against odds to make a living for herself and those she loved. But there were some compensations in this life of toil. One person wrote her, What I am I owe in large measure to the stimulus you imparted. You roused my heart with high hopes. You raised my aims from paltry and vain pursuits to those which lasted and fed the soul. You inspired me with a great ambition, and made me see the worth and the meaning of life. William Hunt, the renowned artist, was looking in a book that lay on the table of a friend. It was Mrs. Jameson's Italian Painters. In describing Correggio, she said he was one of those superior beings of whom there are so few. Margaret had written on the margin, and yet all might be such. Mr. Hunt said, these words struck out a new strength in me. They revived resolutions long fallen away and made me set my face like a flint. Margaret was now thirty-four. The sister was married. 
The brothers had finished their college course, and she was about to accept an offer from the New York Tribune to become one of its constant contributors, an honor that few women would have received. Early in December 1844, Margaret moved to New York and became a member of Mr. Greeley's family. Her literary work here was that of, says Mr. Higginson, the best literary critic whom America has yet seen. Sometimes her reviews, like those on the poetry of Longfellow and Lowell, were censured, but she was impartial and able. Society opened wide its doors to her as it had in Boston. Mrs. Greeley became her devoted friend, and their little son Picky, five years old, the idol of Mr. Greeley, her restful playmate. A year and a half later, an opportunity came for Margaret to go to Europe. Now at last, she would see the art galleries of the old world and places rich in history like Rome. Still, there was the trouble of scanty means and poor health from overwork. She said, A noble career is yet before me if I can be unimpeded by cares. If our family affairs could now be so arranged that I might be tolerably tranquil for the next six or eight years, I should go out of life better satisfied with the page I have turned in it than I shall if I must still toil on. After two weeks on the ocean, the party of friends arrived in London, and Miss Fuller received a cordial welcome. Wordsworth, now seventy-six, showed her the lovely scenery of Rydal Mount, pointing out as his especial pride his avenue of hollyhocks, crimson, straw color, and white. De Quincey showed her many courtesies. Dr. Chalmers talked eloquently, while William and Mary Howitt seemed like old friends. Carlyle invited her to his home. To interrupt him, she said, is a physical impossibility. If you get a chance to remonstrate for a moment, he raises his voice and bears you down. In Paris, Margaret attended the Academy lectures, saw much of George Sand, waited through melting snow at Avignon to see Laura's tomb, and at last was in Italy the country she had longed to see. Here, Mrs. Jameson, Powers, and Greenough, and the Brownings and Stories were her warm friends. Here she settled down to systematic work, trying to keep her expenses for six months within four hundred dollars. Still, when most cramped for means herself, she was always generous. Once, when living on a mere pittance, she loaned fifty dollars to a needy artist. In New York, she gave an impecunious author five hundred dollars to publish his book, and, of course, never received a dollar in return. Yet the race for life was wearing her out. So tired was she that she said, I should like to go to sleep and be born again into a state where my young life should not be prematurely taxed. Meantime, the struggle for Italian unity was coming to its climax. Mazzini and his followers were eager for a republic. Pius the Ninth had given promises to the Liberal Party, but afterwards abandoned it and fled to Gaeta. Then Mazzini turned for help to the President of the French Republic, Louis Napoleon, who in his heart had no love for republics, but sent an army to reinstate the Pope. Rome, when she found herself betrayed, fought like a tiger. Men issued from the workshops with their tools for weapons, while women from the housetops urged them on. One night, over 150 bombs were thrown into the heart of the city. 
Margaret was the friend of Mazzini and enthusiastic for Roman liberty. All those dreadful months she ministered to the wounded and dying in the hospitals, and was their saint, as they called her. But there was another reason why Margaret Fuller loved Italy. Soon after her arrival in Rome, as she was attending Vespers at St. Peter's with a party of friends, she became separated from them. Failing to find them, seeing her anxious face, a young Italian came up to her and politely offered to assist her. Unable to regain her friends, Angela Osley walked with her to her home, though he could speak no English and she almost no Italian. She learned afterward that he was of a noble and refined family, that his brothers were in the papal army, and that he was highly respected. After this, he saw Margaret once or twice when she left Rome for some months. On her return, he renewed the acquaintance, shy and quiet though he was, for her influence seemed great over him. His father, the Marquis Osily, had just died, and Margaret, with her large heart, sympathized with him, as she alone knew how to sympathize. He joined the liberals, thus separating himself from his family, and was made a captain of the civic guard. Finally he confessed to Margaret that he loved her, and that he must marry her or be miserable. She refused to listen to him as a lover, said he must marry a younger woman. She was thirty-seven, and he but thirty. But she would be his friend. For weeks he was dejected and unhappy. She debated the matter with her own heart. Should she, who had had many admirers, now marry a man her junior, and not of surpassing intellect like her own? If she married him, it must be kept a secret till his father's estate was settled, for marriage with a Protestant would spoil all prospect of an equitable division. Love conquered, and she married the young Marquis Osley in December 1847. He gave to Margaret the kind of love which lasts after marriage, veneration of her ability and her goodness. Such tender, unselfish love, writes Mrs. Story, I have rarely before seen. It made green her days, and gave her an expression of peace and serenity which before was a stranger to her. When she was ill, he nursed and watched over her with the tenderness of a woman. No service was too trivial, no sacrifice too great for him. How sweet it is to do little things for you, he would say. To her mother, Margaret wrote, though she did not tell her secret, I have not been so happy since I was a child as during the last six weeks. But days of anxiety soon came with all the horrors of war. Osily was constantly exposed to death in that dreadful siege of Rome. Then Rome fell, and with it the hopes of Osily and his wife. There would be neither fortune nor home for a liberal now, only exile. Very sadly, Margaret said good-bye to the soldiers in the hospitals, brave fellows whom she honored, who in the midst of death itself would cry, Viva l'Italia! But before leaving Rome, a day's journey must be made to Rietta at the foot of the Umbrian Apennines. And for what? The most precious thing of Margaret's life was there, her baby. The fair child with blue eyes and light hair like her own had already been named by the people in the house Angelino from his beauty. She had always been fond of children. Emerson's Waldo, for whom Threnody was written, was an especial favorite. Then Picky, Mr. Greeley's beautiful boy, 
and now a new joy had come into her heart, a child of her own. She wrote to her mother, In him I find satisfaction for the first time to the deep wants of my heart. Nothing but a child can take the worst bitterness out of life and break the spell of loneliness. I shall not be alone in other worlds whenever eternity may call me. I wake in the night. I look at him. He is so beautiful and good I could die for him. When Osalie and Margaret reached Rietta, what was their horror to find their child worn to a skeleton, half-starved through the falsity of a nurse? For four weeks the distressed parents coaxed him back to life, till the sweet beauty of the rounded face came again, and then they carried him to Florence, where, despite poverty and exile, they were happy. In the morning, she says, as soon as dressed, he signs to come into our room, then draws our curtain with his little dimpled hand, kisses me rather violently, and pats my face. I feel so refreshed by his young life, and Osalie diffuses such a power and sweetness over every day that I cannot endure to think yet of our future. It is very sad we have no money. We could be so quietly happy a while. I rejoice in all Osalie did, but the results in this our earthly state are disastrous, especially as my strength is now so impaired. This much I hope, in life or death, to be no more separated from Angelino. Margaret's friends now urged her return to America. She had nearly finished a history of Rome in this trying time, 1848, and could better attend to its publication in this country. Osalie, though coming to a land of strangers, could find something to help support the family. To save expense, they started from Leghorn, May 17, 1850, in the Elizabeth, a sailing vessel, Though Margaret dreaded the two months' voyage and had premonitions of disaster, she wrote, I have a vague expectation of some crisis, I know not what, but it has long seemed that in the year 1850 I should stand on a plateau in the ascent of life, when I should be allowed to pause for a while and take more clear and commanding views than ever before yet my life proceeds as regularly as the fates of a Greek tragedy, and I can but accept the pages as they turn. I shall embark, praying fervently that it may not be my lot to lose my boy at sea, either by unsolaced illness, or amid the howling waves, or, if so, that Osalie, Angelo, and I may go together, and that the anguish may be brief. For a few days all went well on shipboard, and then the noble Captain Hasty died of smallpox and was buried at sea. Angelino took this dread disease, and for a time his life was despaired of, but he finally recovered and became a great pet with the sailors. Margaret was putting the last touches to her book. Osalie and young Sumner, brother of Charles, gave each other lessons in Italian and English, and thus the weeks went by. On Thursday, July 18, after two months, the Elizabeth stood off the Jersey coast between Cape May and Barnegat. Trunks were packed, good nights were spoken, and all were happy, for they would be in New York on the morrow. At nine that night a gale arose. At midnight it was a hurricane. At four o'clock Friday morning the ship struck Fire Island Beach. The passengers sprung from their berths. We must die, said Sumner to Mrs. Hasty. 
"'Let us die calmly, then,' was the response of the widow of the captain. At first, as the billows swept over the vessel, Angelino, wet and afraid, began to cry, but his mother held him closely in her arms and sang him to sleep. Noble courage on a sinking ship! The Italian girl who had come with them was in terror, but after Osalie prayed with her, she became calm. For hours they waited anxiously for help from the shore. They could see the lifeboat and the people collecting the spoils which had floated thither from the ship, but no relief came. One sailor and another sprang into the waves and saved themselves. Then Sumner jumped overboard, but sank. One of the sailors suggested that if each passenger sit on a plank, holding on by ropes, they would attempt to push him or her to land. Mrs. Hasty was the first to venture, and after being twice washed off, half-drowned, reached the shore. Then Margaret was urged, but she hesitated unless all three could be saved. Every moment the danger increased. The crew were finally ordered to save themselves, but four remained with the passengers. It was useless to look longer to the people on shore for help, though it was now past three o'clock, twelve hours since the vessel struck. Margaret had finally been induced to try the plank. The steward had taken Angelino in his arms, promising to save him or die with him, when a strong sea swept the forecastle, and all went down together. Osalie caught the rigging for a moment, but Margaret sank at once. When last seen, she was seated at the foot of the foremast, still clad in her white nightdress, with her hair fallen loose upon her shoulders. Angelino and the steward were washed upon the beach twenty minutes later, both dead though warm. Margaret's prayer was answered that they might go together and that the anguish might be brief. The pretty boy of two years was dressed in a child's frock taken from his mother's trunk which had come to shore, laid in a seaman's chest and buried in the sand while the sailors who loved him stood around weeping. His body was finally removed to Mount Auburn and buried in the family lot. The bodies of Osalie and Margaret were never recovered. The only papers of value which came to shore were their love letters, now deeply prized. The book ready for publication was never found. When those on shore were asked why they did not launch the lifeboat, they replied, Oh, if we had known there were any such persons of importance on board, we should have tried to do our best. Thus, at forty, died one of the most gifted women in America, when her work seemed just begun. To us, who see how the world needed her, her death is a mystery. To him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, there is no mystery. She filled her life with charities and her mind with knowledge, and such are ready for the progress of eternity. End of section 5 Recording by Sherry Gardner